We're going to begin our Christmas series today. And we are looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 36 through 38. Going to be looking at a woman named Anna. The title of the message is Devout, Devoted, and Declarative. Luke chapter 2, 36 through 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. Verse 38. And at that very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Lord, help us as we study. I want to talk to you about her calling as a prophetess and then about what she pronounced her as a proclaimer. Let me give you the backdrop. Mary and Joseph had brought baby Jesus in to be dedicated. It was a requirement of the law that every child be dedicated to the Lord. Male children 33 days, females at 66. And Mary and Joseph lived near Jerusalem and so Jerusalem was the spot at which you really wanted your child dedicated. Remember the baby was born, Christ was born in Bethlehem, about six miles away. And so it was an easy trek to get to Jerusalem. I'm not quite sure if things morphed in that the primary spot to do baby dedications was at the temple, which was in Jerusalem. But considering the fact that Israel was scattered now to the four winds, and that there were probably more Jews that lived outside of the nation than lived in there may have been some provision for babies to be dedicated in synagogues. Synagogues were established so that people could understand something, Jewish people could understand something in terms of who God was and what he required, not as a substitute for what happened in Jerusalem, but as an addition. And at times, I imagine, babies were dedicated in those environments. Yet, just about everybody who had strong Jewish heritage, not just not just genetic but spiritual looked at Jerusalem as being the spot where they wanted to dedicate their baby I guess it would be a whole lot like if a Catholic had an opportunity to get their baby baptized or christened at the Vatican wow that's the holy see that's where the Pope lives I mean this is cool now doing it Chantilly would be cool too but <laughs> Vatican would have a little bit more pull, I think. So Jerusalem was the spot, and the temple was it. Everybody wanted, I want my baby dedicated there. Now, we do baby dedications here. And we are church anywhere between three and 5,000, depending upon what Sunday, and what people call us home. On a regular Sunday, we're about 2,700 folks. On a big Sunday, we're 5,000. Don't know. But I do know that all those people who make up all those people who think they're a part of us want to make sure that they dedicate their children here, even if they are members. And so of all the people who would consider themselves part of our home, probably we have somewhere on the order of 10 to 15 babies born a month. Yeah, I think that's pretty, pretty right. But, if, but that's just a total of 5,000 people. The nation of Israel was three, three to five million. And the temple was a building smaller than the one we're in. It wasn't big. Now, they had ancillary spots all over, but the place of worship was small. 
Even though the building was grandiose, there were small rooms all over the place. And the present temple, though it's been deconstructed, the Herod's temple was much different than Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was much smaller. Herod's was much larger. And so this <clears throat> was Herod's temple, and there were ancillary rooms, but they weren't all for everything that God prescribed in the Old Testament. They were for other purposes. Suffice it to say that I don't care how big the building is, it ain't big enough for three million people who give birth to babies. <laughs> or five million. In that environment, you could have two, three hundred babies born a day. A day. So can you imagine the queue? The line at the temple to get your baby dedicated that day? Now what we do when we have babies dedicated, we do it about every three, two, three months. We'll do it in mass. So we'll have all the children that want to be dedicated at that time. Parents come and, and we pray for them at one time. Anywhere from two to eight. But when you got 300 that line up on one day and say, time to dedicate my baby. Because it was a prescribed day you needed to do it. You couldn't just put it off to where they were now could walk themselves to the temple and be dedicated. <laughs> 33 days. So you had to bring your child and there, there was a requirement to make sure you brought an offering. And so there was a whole lot of stuff that centered around this dedicatory moment. And so there had to be some administration. There had to be some people dedicated as priests to the process of dedication. And you can imagine how this would be day after day after day after day after day. Babies, although they're important, they now are kind of like numbers. Okay, everybody come together. We'll pray this prayer. We'll do this thing. You sacrifice and then leave. Because we got the next group that's waiting to come in. And it would be like this on the regular. Don't know whether they did them individually. Don't know whether they did them in mass. I don't know. But we do know that it was a lot in a period of time. So much so that you, you almost lost the personal touch. You had to be intentional about a personal touch. Mary and Joseph come into this environment with baby Jesus. And they walk in and there's nothing about Mary and Joseph that would somehow capture people's attention in the way they dressed or the way they appeared. They were just normal human beings. We know they didn't have a lot of resources. And Joseph had probably given all he could, all he had in order to marry Mary. Because by the time they got to the place of dedication, the requirement was this, that if you dedicated your child, you were supposed to bring a lamb or a goat. And that goat or lamb had to be very, it had to be perfect, couldn't have any defect, no blemish, nothing. And um, on the order of magnitude with respect to, to cost and evaluation, probably in neighborhood of three or $400 did that lamb cost. But if you didn't have the resources to get a lamb, you could bring turtle doves. And turtle doves, two of them, were about 50 cents for a pair. And we know that Mary and Joseph, it says, brought turtle doves. So he probably didn't, didn't come in a Joseph Abood suit. And though it was a really important moment, she probably didn't shop at Nordstrom's the night before. Nothing about them would commend anybody, commend them to anybody as being super important. They were just a couple with a baby. And Jesus didn't have a little bib on that said, Son of God. So... They're just walking in with the crowd. And all of a sudden, this man named Simeon sees him. And he notices the child. And he says, 
what I've been waiting for all my life. God promised me, promised me that I wouldn't see death until I saw the Christ child. And, and, and I imagine every day, because he was an old man now, I imagine every day he said, he got to come around soon. <laughs> it's got to be soon. So every day that passed, as he went into his 80s, he was looking. What do you anticipate God doing? How do you appear? What do your eyes look for every day? There are so many things that God has promised me that the longer I live, the more I look. Because I know that what he said he's going to do. And I am, as long as I continue to walk, as long as I continue to step with him, I am walking into his promises every day. Simeon got up like that every day. If I can just, if I can, if my eyes open, I'm one day closer. I'm one day closer. That day came. He said, my eyes, I can go to my grave in peace now. And he began to proclaim and prophesy. Told about who the child would be. Told about what it would do to his mama. And Joseph and Mary just sitting there saying, oh, we just came to dedicate our baby. Wow, this is, we knew, you know, angel. Yeah. Okay, this is great. And then all of a sudden from the side, here comes a little woman. About four foot nothing. 84 years old. She hears. Now, Simeon wasn't whispering. He was within earshot of a lot of people. But this woman heard. I'm begging you. You might, you might be listening. I mean, you understand the English that's coming out of my mouth this morning. But are you hearing? I beg you, hear. Hear. Don't just be one that gets the decibels. Everybody could hear what he was saying, but very few heard. Except this little woman who was a prophetess. Now, John the Baptist gets all the credit for being the prophet of the day. Meaning, the one who had governmental responsibility to usher in something that had not been or to set the tone for the environment. And he... He was amazing. There's no way you can minimize that man's influence. But he gets the, the cred as being the first prophet since Malachi. The book of Malachi was the last book of the Old Testament and had been written some 400 years earlier. And he gets credit as being the first prophet. And indeed, he was the first governmental prophet. But he wasn't the first prophet. Anna was. Says she was a prophetess, heard from God. Now we don't know that she spoke to Herod or to the leaders of God's people or to Pilate. But we know that she heard from God for the benefit of others. And so there are designations of prophets. Not everybody can be Elijah. I mean, that, that, that comes around once in a blue moon, an Elijah kind of prophet. And, and even during Elijah's day, there were prophets who were being pursued by Jezebel, who was the queen married to the king Ahab, both of whom were really messed up. And they wanted to kill all the prophets. There was a man named Obadiah who was a contemporary of Elijah. And for those of you who don't know Elijah, he was one of the few men in history that's been able to control the heavens. He could tell it when to rain. <laughs> that's some influence with God right there. He could tell it when to bring down fire from heaven. It was at Elijah's word, not God's. God honored Elijah's word and said, if you are God, 
show it now and answer by fire from heaven. God said, okay, you got some, you got some influence when your voice influences God. He was special. But Obadiah didn't have all that going on, but he was still a prophet in his day. And he was caring for the rest of the prophets that Jezebel wanted to kill by hiding them in caves. And so there are designations of, of offices of prophets and orders and, and responsibilities and stewardships. Yet the office of the prophet needs to be acknowledged wherever it is. And here we have a woman who is the first prophet in the New Testament. That ought to say something to you, ladies. God hasn't forgotten you, and you're not an afterthought. Prophetess. Secondly, it says she was the daughter of Phanuel. Now, most women who are married aren't defined by their father. They're more defined by their husband. And she was married seven years and then lived as a widow until the age of 84. And the way it says it gives you the impression that she was married young and lived as a widow for a very long time because of the, the language and the, the syntax that is used. You don't get the sense from the way it's said that she got married at 72 and lived as a widow till 84 and was married seven years. You don't get that impression. You get the impression that the reason it says it this way is because she, she, was, a, she was widowed young and she decided to do something productive when, with her life when her dreams died. Now, she was the daughter of Phanuel. And Phanuel, and, and we don't know who inspired this, what I'm about to say, but Phanuel and, and, and Anna seem to have some kind of passion to be around God's people. Now, if, if, you, if you don't know your Israelite history, you'll miss this point. Little word in there, no phrase tribe of Asher. Now Jerusalem was made up primarily of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Levi. There were two kingdoms, a divided monarchy. They split after the reign of Solomon, during the reign of his son, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, where ten tribes went to the north, two tribes stayed in the south. And so you had Asher with Gad and Naphtali and Simeon and and Reuben and all these tribes to the north that made up Samaria. And you had two in the south that made up Judah. You had Judah and you had Levi. And Levi stayed in the south because it was responsible for the house. And that's where the house was, was in Jerusalem. And then you had a little smattering kind of overlap with Benjamin, not much, but primarily Judah and Levi. I know I'm about losing most of you right now, but stay with me. In 712 B.C., the northern kingdom was destroyed and its people dispersed. Assyria came down and conquered it. And they took the peoples and dispersed them to the four corners of the earth. That included Asher. So if somebody from Asher wound up in Jerusalem, they did it intentionally. We don't know whether Daddy Fanuel decided, I can't be with my people the way I want to be with my people because my people have been dispersed every place. I can't even find my kinsmen. But I know where my extended people are. It may not be the immediate family, but those, that's the tree from which I came. That's the root system. I'm going to go find home. 
There's a love for God's people and a desire to be around them that is reflected in this language. Specifically, that it mentioned she's from Asher means that somebody had to make a decision to say we are moving from wherever we are to get near God's folk. What kind of commitment do you have to the household of God? How much do you love his people? We planted a church out in, in, in uh, Los Angeles, Culver City, last, uh, actually two Julys ago, July 14, 2014. And uh, pastors come around, they want to ask what we're doing and how we plant. They say, we plant a church in L.A. And, oh, really? Really? Who'd you send? He said, we sent pastor and his wife and kids and yeah, about 15, 16 other folk. I said, wait, 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 wait. You sent an entire staff out there? You mean you're paying? So no, 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 these are workers. They went to get jobs. They quit their jobs here and got jobs there. You mean you inspired people to, to, to sell their house and to leave their, their jobs to go be a part of a church when there are so many good churches around? I said, what kind, what kind of people you build? That should be normal. Hear me. I'm not expecting everybody to get up and move. That's not what I'm saying. You ought to love the house like that. That's all I'm saying. You ought to love God's people so much that if he called you to move tomorrow, you would say, where? You wouldn't go through all the, well, how am I going to? Lord, do you know? Have, have you thought about, did you, did you Really? Where? You get all the counsel necessary to make sure it's a good decision. But your heart just says, I'm your boy. I'm your girl. What you want me to do? I'm going to do it. I love your people. Now, the common idea is that you can do church anywhere. Just find a place and sit down. Just enjoy it. And then go do what you do during the week and then come back the next Sunday and find a place and sit down. That's the way America does church. It's not biblical. It's partially biblical. I'm glad they're doing this little bit right. It's better than not doing anything right. But there is so much more for people to be in. This family, whether it's her or her daddy, and I think her daddy, had a passion and said, let's move to Jerusalem. I want to be near his people, my people. Now, having said that, there is a love for God's people that all of us need to have, but it, it needs to be prioritized well. Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment. Indeed, he asked some people about the greatest commandment. He said, it is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. He put them in priority, yet they are inextricably bound. There's no way you can love people like you should unless you love God like you should. Can't, can't. Even though they are bound together, one precedes the other. You can't love people unless you love God right. Can't. So even though there seems to be an attention that is proper, that this family, whether it's her daddy or her, give to the people of God, she is defined by her relationship to her father rather than her relationship to her husband. As much as I love you, and I, I really like to be identified with you, I don't like 
to be identified so much as the pastor of Grace Covenant. I like to be identified as a member. Because I like what you look like. I like how you present. I love the fact that I just get to be a part of you. It's really special. But as much as I love you, I'm more in tune to being, to being identified as a son of God rather than the son of Grace Covenant. Amen. Are you listening to me? I know the passage doesn't say this, but I'm drawing it from it. It is important for us to have a vision together as a people. And I love that we are who we are because God has made us who we are. We are distinct from other congregations, yet not separate. We have a vision that's different than others, but that doesn't make us any less a part of the body. And so we need to identify first and foremost as being his children and realize that he's got other children. And they are not distant cousins, they are brothers and sisters. And even though we identify with the vision that God has given us and our mission, that doesn't exclude us from relating to other people that aren't a part of us. Because we all first identify with our father. That's how we're defined the most. I'm a son of almighty God before I'm a Grace Covenant Church member. Are you listening to me? This woman was identified by her daddy. I'm identified first by my heavenly father. And if somebody believes that Jesus Christ is Lord, if they believe he, he died on a cross, was buried, rose again, they got all that foundational stuff that I don't care whether they stink, they sprinkle or dunk. Talk about baptism. I don't care. They're my brother. They're my sister. Now I'm going to dunk and they go sprinkle. That's fine. I don't care if they speak in tongues or not because I do and they don't. That's not going to separate me from them. I am tied to them as family members. The danger is this. We identify too much with our earthly connection and less with our heavenly. And all of a sudden, we're more Baptist than we are Christian. We're more Catholic than we are Christian. We're more Grace Covenant than we are Christian. Are you listening to me? I'm not down on anybody. I'm just talking about all. We first identify Defined by our father. And then secondly, with the body. Yet we don't allow the two to be such intention that we don't bring them together on the regular. And you, you gotta, you gotta love the church. Most folk want to, most folk want to relate to God who are Christians but they really don't want to relate to people. And so they want to keep their relationship with God as primary, and indeed I'm glad about that, but then there is a secondary that is absolutely critical. If you love his body, if you love him, you're going to love his body, and if you love his body, you're going to be a part of some people. But people don't want to be a part of people because people are messed up. And if they get a part of people, then they're going to get hurt. If they get a part of people, they're going to be problems. But the problem is that you're not a part of people to fix the problems that are in people. So you stay aside from the problems and the problems remain because you're not there to be a help. And now you become the problem. You ought to be more like Noah. Noah had this big boat, 450 feet long, ocean line, a whole bunch of animals in it. 
Nine months he was in this boat. Nine months. It rained 40 days, but it took another seven and a half months for the waters to recede. He was in it for nine months. And really, it, it, how do I explain it? Have you ever been to the zoo? See, there were only seven other people in the boat. The rest of it was filled with animals. Have you ever been to the zoo? Specifically, the ape house. See, in most of the zoo, it's an arid spot. It's not enclosed. But the ape house is enclosed. And before you ever see one monkey... One ain't moving around. You open the door, and, and what do you experience? Help me today. What do you experience? Your nostrils are full. And everything within you is saying, let's enjoy this as quickly as we can. Let's get out of here in a hurry. Because the longer you stay, you realize that smells get into clothes. They get into hair. You, you, you stay there long enough, all of a sudden, you smell like the apes. Nine months. The ape house can be run through in about ten minutes. Nine months. And you say to yourself, gosh, I kept Noah in the boat. I mean, that's, I mean, you can get used to smells, but I mean, wow, what kept Noah in the boat? Right? I, I, I think he had a shovel. I think he had a shovel. I think. But what kept Noah in the boat? Sometimes you just got to realize it's worse outside. It's worse outside. Outside is death. Outside is judgment. Outside is flooding. In here, I'm safe. May I say the church is not great. It may not be what you want it to be at all, but it's worse outside. It is worse outside. At least people on the inside are trying to be better. At least we're trying to obey scripture. At least we're trying to love you. And we get to work on one another so that we can practice what it means to love each other who are supposed to like each other so that when we get outside, we can love our enemies. And if you don't practice it here, you won't be good out there. God allows this to be a safe environment where you can work through difficulties and use the tool belt of all the things God has given you to make sure the relationships are fixed rather than living in disrepair so that when you get out of the world, you can make a difference that is supernatural in such a way that everybody says, you've got to be a Christian because of your love. I've never seen anybody love like this. That's what Jesus said. They will know that you are my disciples because you love each other differently. You got you to gotta love the church even though it's hard to love. And remember, the problem that you have with people is the same problem they have with you. Amen. So we sit there pointing the finger at one another, never coming to a happy understanding of what God wants to do between us. This family had a love for the house. And then it says, not only did she have this wire. Now, I'm speaking about all this because these, these are the, the hard 
wiring concepts that allow her to be prepped so she can hear things that nobody else heard, though they heard it. When you love the house like this, you hear stuff. Your perceptive God reveals himself to you in ways that he would love to do with others, and he's trying, but they don't get it because they don't have your heart. Everybody else in the temple could have had an opportunity to understand who was visiting church that day. But only she heard. And it says that she was in there how often? Day and night. She served with fasting. Day and night. And it says she never left. Now that's hyperbolic in its understanding. It's exaggerative. She left. She, she didn't do everything all day, every day, and never leave it. But what it means functionally, she was there when the doors opened and probably helped lock up. That woman, all she wanted to do is just help people and serve God. This allowed her the privilege of being those, somebody who could hear what was going on when everybody else couldn't. When you love the house and when you are doing things for the kingdom with fastings and prayers for other people's benefit, oh gosh, something that doesn't mean that you got to be in this house every day when the doors open and close. That's not what it's inferring. What I'm inferring is this. What I'm inferring from the passage and implying to you is that you ought to be able to take the principles of the kingdom with you wherever you go. You ought to take the the standards of the house with you wherever you go. That you want to bring the kingdom to bear, the house to bear in your employment. You want to bring it to bear in your own home. You want to bring it to bear in every relationship you've got. You want to see God glorified in all that you do and in all that you are. You have a heart like that that is attentive to to who he wants to be to everybody. All of a sudden, you begin to hear and see differently. This is what she was about. Day and night, concentrating on kingdom stuff. And then, it says, once she got this insight, once she saw, she began to thank God. Now, I didn't get to preach a Thanksgiving message last week because I... I ran over two weeks ago what I was supposed to preach, and I had to finish it last week. So this is my Thanksgiving message to you. Amen. She gave thanks to God. Amen. <laughs> Again, we look at it religiously, and we forget what, it, what it's not saying. For what? For what? Was this baby going to do anything for her in her lifetime? Had he done anything yet? See, we relegate our Thanksgiving moments to what God has done for me lately. And if he hasn't done what we want him to do, we are very thankful. We're more mad about what we didn't get rather than happy about what we did. And then we mute our Thanksgiving. We're upset. Our soul is frustrated. And we begin to say, why me, God? Where were you? How come this? And I don't know that there was anybody who could have asked those questions with greater credibility than Anna. A friend of mine um, actually play uncles. They're a friend of my parents. Um, They lived in Kansas City when we lived in Kansas City. Uh, My mother would drop me off at her house to babysit me. 
My mother and, and she were, were both school teachers in the same school district. They favored one another and people confused them as sisters all the time. Her husband looked like my dad. Their kids looked like us. Everybody confused us as brothers and sisters all the time. We grew up together for a decade. And then they moved to D.C. in the area and they lived in Silver Spring. We lost contact, but we still kept a relationship. So we didn't see one another as often. We lived in Kansas City. They were my uncle and aunt. They were my play parents when I moved here. I'd go to Thanksgiving. That's where I'd spend all my time. He passed away in May. He's a great man. I mean a great man. Not just because he's my play uncle. He was a great man. They'd been married 60 years. She's a widow, and her children have moved away. And so I'm her play son now. And the Bible says that it's important that you exercise pure religion by going and visiting widows. So I go visit her. My wife and I do. I was there last week. And she needs light bulbs changed. She doesn't know how to do that. All the little stuff that we take for granted. So I show up and I help and, and I say, how you doing? She said, oh, Red, I'm doing fine. I'm fine. She said, I, I, I'm just lonely. I just, I just miss them so much. I said, I understand. I said, do you have any friends? Yeah, I got friends. They're good friends. But they don't sit with me at dinner every night. They don't wake up and eat breakfast and get my coffee. I'm just, I just miss them. I'm lonely. I said, I understand. We cried together and prayed for her. Got to minister to her. The loss sometimes gets in the way of the benefit. And sometimes you've got to push away what you don't have in order to find out what you got. And as we began to pray, she began to say, thank you, Lord, for 60 years. Rather than what she missed and what she felt like and depression is setting in and look, thank you for giving me this man 60 years. Thank you. She could complain about why didn't I go first? She's 84. Why do I have to endure this? God, why'd you take him like that? Why, why couldn't we just pass together in the midnight hour? Just wake up in glory together. Doesn't everybody have that script? Doesn't everybody have that script? We don't hear Anna talking about what she didn't get at all. And I don't know any person that doesn't want to be loved. Doesn't want to have companionship that is trustworthy for the rest of their life. Some of you who were married and aren't anymore, you may not want the hassles of being remarried. I get that. It's just too hard to try to make it work. But nobody doesn't want to be loved. And she didn't go through this moment saying, God, how come you didn't? Why didn't you bring me somebody else? Why have I had to live? We don't hear any of that. We hear her giving thanks to the Father for a baby she'd never receive any benefit from while she's alive. With all the things that you haven't gotten and the things you wished you had, I beg you, bring it back to the greatest common denominator and I it, that's not a math term I'm using it would be the least common denominator but I'm talking about in magnitude the greatest common denominator 
you're not going to hell. He sent his son to save you. He died for your benefit. He rose that he might give you life if he never did anything else. That would be more than enough reason. Thank you. And this woman had to have an eternal perspective. Her pronouncement was, I give you thanks, Father. And then lastly, it says she went around and started talking to everybody. I don't know if anybody listened. Oh, there goes Anna again. She got a happy moment just bumping around, talking to everybody about God. She's always here. There's Anna. Okay. And they kind of dismiss it because she's a little old lady that gets happy with God all the time. They missed it. Now I'm begging you. If God has done, has done anything for you, which he has, how many people do you tell? You may not know all the scriptures. She didn't know them all. I doubt that she sat there and began to quote Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Listen to what I'm saying. I doubt that came out of her mouth. I bet she just went to people and said, that's the Messiah, boy. That's the, that's the what we've been waiting for right there. Let's give God praise. Pray with me right now. Pray, 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 pray. <laughs> I imagine that's kind of what it looked like. Everybody's saying, what's she talking about now? You may not have all the scriptures, but you got a story. You got a story. Who do you tell? There are people out there who have no idea who Jesus is. They don't know the impact that God wants to have in their life. They have no idea why they've been placed on the planet. Who do you talk to about your story? Go start talking to people and letting them hear what God has done for you so they can have the same kind of experience of having God do it for them. Let's make this Christmas a little bit like that. Let's pray.